Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I am your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Uh, want to hear something funny? Yes, I do. I always want to hear something funny, especially from you, Nadia, because you're a very funny human. Oh, that's nice. But this isn't actually funny so much as it's sad. It was snowing today. <laughs> Wait, which one is it? Is it funny or sad? <laughs> it's funny, but not ha-ha funny. It was snowing. It was flurrying today. And we had just come off like literal summer weather. And I woke up this morning and it was raining and it was like there were flakes mixed in with the, with the rain. And I said, you know what? I would go back to bed if that was an option, but it wasn't an option. So I just kind of had to deal with the sad gray sky and the snowflakes. Nadia, mm. it is Sunday. Or it is not Sunday. It is May. May is different from <laughs> Sunday. It is May. It's not allowed to snow in May. Uh, it is in parts of Canada. Sometimes you just get a really, really bad, unlucky day. So I, I like Sunday as a month, though. <laughs> what is the month of Sunday? <laughs> What's funny is that we're recording on a Friday, so I don't even know where that came from. I, I, I we are so mixed up with like days and times right now. Like, see, you have a full time job. You have no excuse for not knowing what day it is. I I don't care. <laughs> well, the nice thing is I have a holiday coming up, so at least I can have some relaxation. Oh, good for you. You deserve that. Indeed. Well, Nadia, this week on Acts of the Blood God, we have a special guest. It is Jason Schreier from Bloomberg, formerly of Kotaku, reporter extraordinaire. He wrote a book. We're going to talk to him about that book. We're also going to talk to him about various RPGs, some E3 predictions. It's going to be a lot of fun. It will be great. I am actually glad that even though uh, Schreier is a big wheel down at the Cracker Factory, he still has time to come in and like talk about not just RPGs, but like JRPGs and like really old ones at that. I think we both agree that we kind of appreciate the opportunity to geek out about RPGs a little bit, given that we... At this point, work for somewhat mainstream pubs. He works for a much more mainstream publication than I do, where it's a little harder to dig into being super nerdy about JRPGs, as it were. Yeah, you can. Like, you probably have more of an opportunity to do it than he does. He's very financially industry-based, and you're a little more... Well, you're very industry-based as well, but you're a little more wider-reaching than he is. Yes, I could. I have the opportunity to do so, sort of, but it's a, it's a tough pitch, honestly. Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. I guess there's not really a lot of room for nerding out about JRPGs, especially those really niche RPGs on uh, on IGN. Depends on the circumstances, Nadia. Depends on the circumstances. But here on Acts of the Blood God, we love nerding out about JRPGs and also PC RPGs. And this week, we will be talking about all of that stuff with Jason. In the meantime, if you enjoy the show, do us a favor, go and leave us a review over on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcatcher of your choice. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And of course, Acts of the Blood God is also on Twitter at Blood God Pod. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Blood God Pod, where if you sign up for us at the $5 level, you will get every episode a week early and ad-free, as well as access to all of our special episodes including the Summer of the Ring, which is going right now. We checked out the Fellowship of the Ring, the most recent episode. It was a lot of fun, Nadia. It was. I'm looking forward to Two Towers, but Fellowship was a great start, and I hope people enjoyed it as much as we did. And this weekend, we are going to record the next episode of Pantheon of the Blood God for Mass Effect with Eric Van Allen, our pal, 
and Nadia were also in the midst of voting for the current, the next pantheon of the Blood God. The theme this month is Shin Megami Tensei. And right now, SM33 Nocturne is in the lead. And that'll be a lot of fun. Well, that suits me just fine. It's a great game. And it's the one I own. So thank you very much for making it easy for me, everybody. I really appreciate that. Well, there's still a chance that Tokyo Mirage Sessions will catch up and overtake Nocturne, but it's looking less and less likely. It looks like Nocturne is going to carry this one all the way home. By the time this episode comes up, we will pretty much know for sure. Actually, Atlas sent me a box of uh, Nocturne stuff, so I got a Jack Frost pin on my purse now. Thank you, Atlas, for that pin. Wow, that was really nice. I had no idea that you were on the take, Nadia. Look at you. Apparently, <laughs> apparently I'm on the take. Uh, I, I sold out my, my entire everything, my soul and everything for a Jack Frost pin. Who wouldn't? I mean, come on. It's Jack Frost. All right. So go check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. All right. Let's get on to the podcast, Nadia. Before we get to the news, what is your sacrifice to the blood god this week? Well, I have been playing Mass Effect for reasons, so I am doing that, and uh, still playing Pokemon Snap. I can't really put it down. Oh, yeah, I see you uh, logging into Pokemon Snap every once in a while over on my Nintendo Switch. I'm really surprised at how much I'm enjoying that stupid, stupid game. It, it just really has its hooks into me, and I'm probably going to finish it. I can only dabble in it once in a while, like when I have time, but yeah, it's certainly a great game to wind down with, and uh, even though it can be as opaque as hell... I still I still love it so much. And but yes, Mass Effect is also happening. Uh, I'm enjoying that quite a bit, except for the fact that the humans look permanently startled or that they all have like a thyroid problem and their eyes are going to bulge out of their skulls. <laughs> so that's really, really frightening. But the aliens look great. I mean, just Rex looks fantastic. Garrus looks great. Uh, yeah, everyone looks fantastic except for the humans. No, no wonder nobody likes the humans in that universe. Holy crap. Neither would I. How far are you? Uh, I could afford to be farther, but I've been really taking my time, like exploring the Citadel. Like I really just kind of went around and talked to everybody and tried to figure out how to use the shops because I find the equipping stuff is a little bit clumsy. But yeah, I'm just kind of slowly going through the lore and, and talking everyone in the Citadel and I'm not very good at fighting, but I did wreck a bar. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> Are you enjoying it? Yeah, I am. Um, Probably going to see it through the end before I start Mass Effect 2, even though some people say, no, just go right ahead to Mass Effect 2. But I don't know. I feel like I should experience this all the way through. I think you should experience it all the way through. And also, I recommend don't use a walkthrough. Have an organic experience and accept in your heart that if a character dies, it's okay. They are dead. Remember your friends you lost along the way. No, I'm, here's the thing. If Rex dies, I'm resetting. Like Anyone else mm -hmm. can die. Fine. I accept it. You fell in battle. I salute you. But I... I can't really kill Rex. It just would not be right. Nadia, I have a recommendation then. Make sure to be mm -hmm. good pals with Rex. Oh yeah, that's easy. I'm already good pals with him. Good. So I'm not going to say anything else. Well, Nadia, I started up Resident Evil Village on my side. Ooh, Vampire Mommy. How's that going? Okay. I was kind of realizing as I was been playing through this game that I'm not the biggest fan of theme park games like Uncharted and The Last mm. of Us. I enjoyed Last of Us Part 2 more than I enjoyed uh, Uncharted. But uh, yeah, this is a theme park game down to there's an entire sequence where you're being chased, uh, where you're like running through an entire tunnel and there are monsters all around you. 
and you're opening doors and then like a giant uh, razor trap is coming straight at your head. And it's like being in Disney's Haunted Mansion, basically. Well, Haunted Mansion is pretty cool. It's funny, though. It sounds a lot like Pokemon Snap, but Pokemon Snap knows what it is. <laughs> so of course, it's a theme park ride. I've seen a mod where um, every time you look at Lady D, her hat grows bigger. So <laughs> th- this footage that I saw, like Lady D's hat was taking up the entire courtyard. It was actually hilarious. I like Lady D. I can see why people are so into her. She's like really cool the first time you actually see her in the game. Yeah, I, I hear she doesn't appear that much. I don't know. I... I mean, I played through the entire intro section and then you get introduced to her along with a, a bunch of other, I guess, the the bosses that you're eventually going to have to fight and kill. It is a very weird game. Resident Evil has really taken a turn since the original game, hasn't it? Resident Evil has definitely taken a turn for the weird since the very first. It's been on a bit of a wild ride when you think about it. The first few games were kind of very tra- traditional Romero zombie games and then Four is four, which is, of course, a milestone in itself. And five and six, uh, that was really more Call of Duty, shooter, shooter, bang, bang sort of stuff. And then seven and eight, some people would say it started to find its legs again. But I guess it depends who you talk to. Yeah, I would say that it started to find its legs with seven. And then Resident Evil Remake 2 brought it fully back. And people were like, this game is amazing. And so now people are super into it. I I'm going to discredit myself by saying this. So this game is supposed to be a tech marvel on the PS5, just showing off all of the bells and whistles of your uh, new console. And for the most part, it does. It looks like a really good game and everything. But I swear to God, the fire effects in Monster Hunter Rise are better than in <laughs> Resident Evil Village. I just the, the fire effects in that game are not good. We're talking about a Switch game here, and they're, they're better than the PS5, eh? Well, I just feel like when I see Arathian shooting giant fireballs, I'm like, why is this more impressive than this game that's on my PS5? I don't know. But maybe I'm crazy. Please feel free to yell at me. It's just my opinion, man. But I Resident Evil Village is fine. I will plug through it a little bit longer, but there's just this thing way in the back of my head going, had yeah, theme park games. Just I, They were really cool back in the, uh, the PS2 360 days. I used to be mm. very impressed by them. And now I just am not that excited by them anymore because when it comes to the story, I sort of feel like I could just turn on Netflix or something and be able to enjoy it that way, enjoy a story that way. And the interactive elements don't really do anything. They feel super artificial. They just don't land to me. One of the reasons I like RPGs is because I like having that sense of agency in my game as opposed to just getting in a minecart, riding through the, the horror and everything. Yeah, that makes sense. I do hear it's a shorter game, though, so maybe you should just go ahead and finish it. Why the hell not? It sounds like an experience in itself. I don't know if I'll ever get to play it. I'll, I have been watching, or I meant I've started to watch a, a playthrough by Markiplier, so I might just go back to watching that instead. Yeah, it is quite short. That is a benefit of it. So maybe I'll just plug through it and be able to say that I was able to do it. I hear it goes places, and there are people like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, it gets like crazy. So I'm like, oh, maybe it'll be fun. So. We shall stick with it. May as well get your money's worth, cat. Well, I didn't pay any money for it, so I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> get your get your free freebies worth, cat. I don't know what to say. Get my time worth or something. There you because go. time is an outlay of resources. You're telling me. All right, Nadia, let's talk about the news. There was a lot of it in the RPG space. First, and this is the biggest one, Dragon Quest 12 has been 
officially announced it. It looks darker and edgier, Nadia. It has a interesting logo, I have to say, and it has an interesting subtitle. Nadia, what do you remember what the subtitle is? I think it was something fire, destiny of fire, fate of fire, something with fire, something, something like that. <laughs> uh, I am blanking for some reason. I find the whole dark thing very interesting because, first of all, as we both know, Dragon Quest is already pretty dark on its own when it wants to be. Uh, five gets extremely dark. Eleven gets very, very dark to the second half of the game. So the idea of there being a more, quote unquote, adult dark Dragon Quest is intriguing to me. I actually do kind of wonder, like, knowing the nature of these kind of presentations to see from Japan once in a while, it might be hyperbole. It might be a mistranslation. I mean, the whole thing was being translated on the fly to begin with. So maybe something didn't come through. Although, yes, the logo and the kind of the darker terrain that you that you see a glimpse of earlier on does indicate something a little darker. I know that some people have been making fun of it, saying, oh, no, what's going to happen to Dragon Quest? But at the end of the day, I really trust Yuji Hori. It's... There, there has not been a, a bad mainline Dragon Quest. Maybe two, if you want to count anything. Seven. But uh, even seven got a little bit of redemption on the 3DS. That was a pretty good remake. Dragon Quest Twelve: The Flames of Fate is what it's. That's called. it. Thank you. I was like, okay, it has to be alliteration because they're always alliterated. Flames of Fate. There you go. The logo reminds me a little bit of Ultima Eight, which I think had mm. a dumb kind of like paladin, not paladin. Uh, you know, pentagram kind of symbol. Yeah. <laughs> Dragon Quest meets Satan. Now we're talking. <laughs> I mean, it it does give me that feeling a little bit. It's like Dragon Quest by way of Satan. Yeah, yeah. But you also have to consider, well, th there was also that interesting remark about how they're going to be changing up the command system, I suppose is the way they put it. And I just don't see them messing around too, too much because remember what happened with Nine when they wanted to make that an action RPG. Uh, Japan, the entirety of Japan nearly went on strike and they said, no, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to walk this Thank back. Thank God for that. Good job, Japan. You did the thing. You saved Dragon Quest. So I think if, they, if things get a little too weird or out of line here, we're probably going to see the same reaction. But again, I really do trust Ryuji Hori to deliver something really great. And of course, Akira Toriyama is always on the top of his game there. Yeah, you're not allowed to experiment with Dragon Quest. If you mess around with Dragon Quest, people in Japan will actually riot. So They will. And I'm kind of glad for that because Final Fantasy is a good experimental franchise. Dragon Quest is a little bit more cemented in its ways. I, I like that about it. There were other announcements as well, Nadia. The one that got us, turned us into the all caps gang over on Twitter <laughs> was the HD 2D remake of Dragon Quest 3, effectively, it's Octopath Traveler, but oops, Dragon Quest 3, which is terrific. And I think we're extremely excited about this prospect, Nadia. I am. Like, of course, I always wanted a Final Fantasy VI in that style, but I never even considered Dragon Quest 3, but that would certainly be a very, very close second because Dragon Quest 3 is still a fantastic RPG despite its age. And I'm really excited that more people will get to experience it now than before there is that mobile port slash nintendo switch ports which are which are fine but they don't look nearly nearly as good as that 2d hd holy crap yeah it looks terrific when it the first the moment that it popped up on the screen i actually yelped and went holy shit like in real life <laughs> so it's funny because i remember when i previewed 
or when I went to go preview Dragon Quest Eleven way back in the day, they mentioned how they tested out whether or not Dragon Quest would work in the Unreal Engine by making a, a small slice of Dragon Quest Three in it. And I thought to myself, when I first saw those 3D graphics, and I, of course, I recognized Dragon Quest Three right away, I said, did, are they releasing that that test demo that they did? Did they make a full game out of that? But no, this is, I mean, Unreal Engine, Octopath Traveler Engine, whatever you want to call it, kind of the same thing in this case, just the Octopath Traveler style is built off the Unreal Engine. So it's kind of, I guess, the same thing in a way. But uh, yeah, they went a little bit extra with the with the graphics, and I think that's really cool. And I think it's kind of fair to say that Dragon Quest Three is still the most beloved one in Japan outside of maybe the original. Just like because that's the one where I feel like everybody acknowledges that true Dragon Quest mania took off. Yeah, Dragon Quest Three is, I think, without contest, the most popular Dragon Quest, especially at least in cultural memory. That's the one that I think people relate to most in Japan with their childhoods and yeah, heck I can I can relate on the same way. They also trolled us about Dragon Quest 10. <laughs> they sure did. Holy moly. I, I love how they were talking about it the whole time. There's a little subtitle or something that says this is not coming to the West, so screw you. It didn't say screw you, but it may as well have. That offline version though, um I've heard yes and no, but there's no announcement of his coming west. There was no definitive no, like he got with Dragon Quest uh, Online 5.5 or 6.0, whatever it was. But there was no definitive yes. And one thing I actually really did like hearing out of this presentation is a lot of these games are coming out at the same time. Like there is, they are finally working on simultaneous worldwide releases, and I'm glad to see that. But they didn't really indicate they're doing that for the offline Dragon Quest X thing. So two things. I didn't know that Dragon Quest X was still going. I guess I shouldn't be mm -hmm. surprised given that Final Fantasy XIV is actually not that much younger than Dragon Quest X and 10 years is actually kind of a no time at all in RPG terms but it yeah. was just so out of sight out of mind and it was on the Wii and the Wii U I don't know if it ever came out to PC it must have at some point but I was just like for some reason in my mind Dragon Quest X was done but no it's still going it's very much still going <laughs> It's still going, and I actually know a lot of people in the Dragon Quest fandom space who play it. Of course, you have to muddle your way through it if you don't know Japanese, but they say it's great. So, um, like I said, I spend too much time on Final Fantasy XIV as it is, so I don't know if I'd have time to do Dragon Quest X as well. I still wouldn't mind the offline version coming, because I hear the story for the game is great. But, um, yeah, either way, we are certainly not getting the online version of X, and I don't think we ever will. So we will not see online Dragon Quest until maybe the next Dragon Quest online game comes out. And who knows when that's happening. Okay, just to be clear, here are the platforms it's on. Wii, Wii U, PC, Android, iOS, Nintendo 3DS, PS4, and Switch. And the Wii U, Windows, PS4, and Switch versions came out in Japan in 2019 for version 5. Version 4 came out in 2017 for Switch. Okay, so... It's been out on Switch since 2017. So yeah, it's still cranking along on like all modern platforms. So I have to say it has a lot more reach than 14, Final Fantasy 14, which is uh, PlayStation and PC and go to hell. That's all you get. <laughs> Play F at 14 or go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have an Xbox, go to hell anyway, because it's not coming out there. But DQ10 being on the Nintendo Switch, I think just instantly makes it very credible over in japan so yeah so i feel dumb but like i said because it was an import only mmorpg 
and MMOs aren't really a genre that I follow that closely anyway. It was always out of sight, out of mind. It was just kind of surprising to me when people were like, like there was this outpouring of like, oh, I want to have, I want Dragon Quest Ten in America. I'm like, why? But I guess like if it's a good, it's a good MMO, send the Dragon Quest universe. Sure, why not? Yeah, um, I mean, I say I don't know if I'd have time to play it, but hell, I'd, I'd certainly give it a chance. But like you, I have not been keeping up to date with Dragon Quest Ten because I just knew I'd never be able to play it, so why bother? So when they're talking about, oh, we're on version 5.5, version 6, to me, it, it just goes over my head because I'm thinking in terms of like uh, Final Fantasy fourteen expansion, so it just doesn't really register to me. I want to meet the people who are still playing this on Wii U, by the way. I, you're, I salute you. And finally, they announced a new spinoff series. It's called Dragon Quest Treasures, and we had a couple of characters from Dragon Quest Eleven in it. It looks like a kind of a lighter version of Dragon Quest Eleven, and maybe telling these little side stories, maybe, from various Dragon Quest games. Is that kind of the impression that you're getting, Nadia? I kind of get an impression that it's more of a spin-off of Monsters, which is fine with me, because I think it started as a Monsters game. It went into development hell, and it resurfaced finally as what it is now. I kind of hope it is a Monsters-like game, because I really enjoyed Joker too when I played it on the DS um, long after it had been released. So main takeaways, Nadia, it seems like all of these Dragon Quest announcements were making all the Dragon Quest fandom quite happy outside of the fact that Dragon Quest X is not coming out in North America. Yeah, I think there's generally people are really excited over the HD 2D remake of 3. That's the thing that got the most buzz. Uh, they're more confused than anything about the Dragon Quest Twelve logo reveal. I guess, what are you going to do? It's a logo and it is kind of a little bit strange. We'll have to see more. I have faith that it will be a good game and that it's not going to be too stupidly dark or anything like that. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to what comes next. And I'm especially looking forward to 2D HD Dragon Quest 3 because, man, like I said, that is still a great game. All right, Nadia, let's run through some more of the RPG news. Quite a bit happened. There was This is the period where we're starting to see a lot of initial showcases ahead of whatever passes for e3 these days one of them <laughs> was a state of play from sony where they showed horizon forbidden west and i have to say it looked quite good in terms of presentation and everything did it make much of an impression on you did you pay attention at all to it nadia i paid zero attention to it i forgot <laughs> what was going on at the same time as a presentation but i was just like oh, okay horizon whatever i didn't really play the first game never really had a huge interest in it uh, to be honest, I think maybe I was soured a bit on it after what happened to Katie and our review with that game. So I I just kind of, you know, let it go over my head. And uh, I did see someone on, I don't know why this sort of opinion keeps coming up all the time, but it happens every single day. Someone has to say that some game is better than Zelda Breath of the Wild. And so I saw someone say that Horizon Zero Dawn is better than Breath of the Wild. And of course, it erupted into a big fight. Why can't Zelda Breath of the Wild just be Zelda Breath of the Wild? Leave it alone, people. <laughs> it's a, it's its own game. I would say let's judge both these games on their own merits, and I think they're Please. perfectly fine. Um, I am not that excited about Horizon Forbidden West, but I have to say that the fight with the giant mechanical uh, woolly mammoth was pretty dope. So I might, uh, you know what? PlayStation 5 is not exactly doing great for exclusives right now, so if it comes out, time is right and people are saying a is pretty good i'll probably give it a try i think sony wants to release it in 2021 as their temple release yeah. they mm -hmm. really 
they conspicuously did not put in a release window for Horizon Forbidden West. So not even like a, oh, it's going to be out in 2022. So it makes me wonder if they're trying to push to see if they can do it in 2021, but if not, 2022. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense because, as you said, they do need a tentpole release for this year. And hey, I'm okay with any game that's set in post-apocalyptic San Francisco. I feel like I live in post-apocalyptic San Francisco a lot of the time. <laughs> it's not a, it's not very different. So, no, you you're living the game, even though there's there's not really any mechanical woolly mammoths yet. Who knows what the tech bros are up to these days? We have release dates, Nadia, for the various Pokemon games. Uh, Pokemon Legends Arceus is coming out sooner than I actually expected. I thought it was going to be coming out somewhat later in 2022, but it's out January 28th, 2022. And the Pokemon Diamond and Pearl remakes, Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl, will be out November 19th. My opinions haven't changed that much, but if they do bring back the Battle Frontier for Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl, I'm in, Nadia. That's all I have to say about that. I actually thought that maybe Arceus would be this year, but uh, I guess not. Nah, no, nah, I, I didn't think it was going to be out this year. I, I thought that it, it was much earlier in development than apparently it is. So It'll be nice to have during the drought, uh, provided the game is good. Hopefully it is. I have to say, justice for Chimchar, how dare you make, <laughs> how dare you make a Sinnoh-focused uh, open-world game and not have like any of the Sinnoh starters? You have starters from every other freaking generation, but like... Actual Sinnoh starters, ugh, unacceptable. Justice. They have they have Cyndaquil, I think, as your fire starter for this one. Look, I like Cyndaquil, don't get me wrong, but how dare they? How dare they? I agree, I agree. I'm trying to think who was the, who's the water starter for Sinnoh? That was, was that Oshawott? No, it was the little penguin, Piplup. Oh, Piplup, okay, yeah, I'd, I'd like to have Piplup there, please. Yeah, they had three not- adorable starters in Piplup, Turtwig, and uh, Chimchar. Turtwig is great. It's really too bad. Like, I love Rowlet, but it is too bad that we're not getting uh, Turtwig. Yeah, Rowlet's great. Uh, the, the three starters that they pick were pretty good, though I think they had the little otter guy, Sad Clown Otter, right? I don't like Sad Clown Otter. Aw, Oshawott's cute. Uh, he grows into he grows into Samurott, who's pretty badass. Oshawott sucks. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> You're gonna get a lot of people angry with you, Cat. Justice for Chimchar. Justice for Chimchar, but don't dump don't dump on Oshawott. He didn't do anything. Okay. Nadia, speaking of not uh companies that did not do anything, so here's a weird thing. <laughs> Rumors start circulating on I think Wednesday. So like Wednesday afternoon, Emily Rogers starts circulating all of these rumors about the Switch Pro. And saying, mm-hmm. we're going to get an announcement. It's going to be before E3. It's coming. It's happening this fall. And everybody's like, what? Because I thought until that morning, I'm sitting here thinking, there's no way that the Switch Pro is coming out this year. Not with all of the chip shortages. Maybe next year, right? But not this year. Yeah. And now, no, actually, not only is it coming out this year, it's coming out because it needs to be shown at like E3. And things like that. Games games for the thing need to be shown at E3. And I'm just going, what the heck? And so all of a sudden we're all we're on high alert, waiting for the Switch Pro to be announced. I stood I stayed up until 8 p.m. sitting in front of my computer 
with a shell written for the Switch Pro just in case <laughs> I needed, in, just in case the press release came through and I needed to hit uh, publish and, you know, swing into action and mm-hmm. everything. And absolutely nothing happens. And so it could still happen like next Tuesday or thereabouts, but it was kind of a bizarre saga. And I think everybody's still going, is this going to happen? What the heck is going on? Yeah, you never really know when when people say on Twitter, oh, this is going to happen this week. It often doesn't. I'm not saying there's not going to be a Switch Pro announcement. I can, I, I certainly think it makes sense to have that before E3 so that Nintendo can focus on the games. Especially, I think we're going to get a lot about Breath of the Wild this year, which I'm really excited about. But yeah, when they say, oh, it's going to be this week or it's going to be this day, it's always like a day after or a week after and... Now, see, I don't care because I'm not writing the news, but you care because <laughs> that's your job. It is my job. So I'm sorry. It is. I'm true, very no. sorry. Yeah, I could be like, oh, I'm going to take a nap. And then, oh, maybe when I wake up, there'll be switch news. And, you know, if there isn't, oh, well, if there is, hey, great. But I don't have to worry about it. I'm sorry. Lucky you, right? Very lucky me. I can't say I miss it. <laughs> and I wasn't even a big news writer, but there was always like a high alert sort of thing going on, like at US Gamer when there was those kinds of rumors swirling around because we all had to be on deck because you're going to do social media. You're going to do a, a outtake. You're going to do the news and you can do that. We always had a plan going on. Well, I do think that there is definitely some fire here because the people who are pushing this rumor are very plugged in when it comes to Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Like Emily Rogers has hysterically been very, plugged in to Nintendo for the most part. Uh, it took me a little off guard that all of a sudden she came out and was like, yo, Switch Pro, it's happening. Um, and then Bloomberg came out and supported this and said, yeah. And the the writer who was writing it, um, I believe is based in Japan and has a lot of sources like directly with Nintendo and everything and tends to be very right about this kind of thing. So I think he's like one of the foremost kind of Nintendo insiders, I guess you could say, over at Bloomberg. So the fact that he was reporting on this tells me that probably something is going to happen. I don't know. Like maybe internal plans will change. We'll see. And then uh, Tom Phillips over at Eurogamer chimed in and was also backing it up. So there, are, yeah, there's yeah. some fairly prominent journalists um, and also Emily Rogers. No offense to Emily. I, I think she's great, but she's not a journalist. But you see what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I think that there's a fair amount of uh, fire behind this. It's not just some random rumor being pushed on a message board. Like journalists are really pushing this thing. So I wouldn't be shocked if the Switch Pro gets announced next week. Yeah, in fact, I would go as far as to say Nintendo was planning to announce it this week, but they got gun shy because Nintendo hates, hates being jumped on like that. They just, I could see them changing yeah. their plans and saying, you know what? It's going to be next week because we like to take you guys by surprise and screw you. So. I have no idea what's happening in Nintendo. Uh, notably, I believe Nintendo is actually closed. Uh, was actually closed on Friday, so it may be that they were just like, "Nah, we're gonna, we're, we're not gonna do it until we're back." So, uh, so maybe Tuesday. Thinking about it, like this Monday is Memorial Day for you guys, right? Yes. But Japan doesn't have a holiday. Even Canada, we had a holiday, Victoria Day last week. So you could, you could get the announcement on Monday, and <laughs> you'll have to go to work, Cat. I'm sorry. I don't know if there's a bank holiday or something happening on Friday, mm-hmm. but if they announced it on Monday, I would be kind of mad. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you wouldn't be the only one. I think Nintendo would probably just do that as a flourish for like, hey, you know what? You all jumped us. Now we're jumping you. Ha ha ha. 
That would be the ultimate screw journalist, isn't it? Wouldn't it? Oh, it totally, totally would. And I can see them doing it. All right. And the final piece of news, Microsoft is holding a Bethesda showcase. Nadia wrote Bethany Esda, which is like really distracting <laughs> to me. But <laughs> Yes. I love that. That was a monster factory. Like they uh, started off their Fallout 4 stream with, hi, I'm Beth Esda. Thank you for playing my game. They were... <laughs> so I always call them Bethany Esda now. I'm sorry. So yeah, Microsoft's uh, Bethesda showcase is going to be happening on June 13th. Uh, Bethesda, Microsoft is definitely kind of keeping Bethesda close to it. And it seems like we are going to get a Starfield teaser and release window, which is going to be fun. I am actually really looking forward to Starfield. And that is all the news. Let's continue on to our chat with Jason Schreier. Don't go away. Okay, we are with Jason Schreier from Bloomberg. Jason just released Press Reset, Rune and Recovery in the video game industry. And Jason's been on the show before to talk about games like Suikoden 2. We're all pals from the RPG beat. Jason, it's so good to have you back. How are you doing? Hello, Kat and Nadia. Thank you so much for, for having me on the show to talk RPGs. Always happy to talk JRPGs. I don't get to do it much these days at Bloomberg. I can't just randomly <laughs> blog about Suikoden whenever I feel like it. But, they should uh, let you do that. They should. They should. <laughs> one day, one day, I will I will convince the uh, the analysts at Morgan Stanley to go play Xeno Gears. One day. Oh, I would like that. Maybe they would learn some new things. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> learn how to kill God. <laughs> <laughs> we all got to learn sometime. We don't want to teach them. We don't want to give them ideas here. Jeez. Well, Jason, I brought you on because I wanted to talk to you about your book, but also I wanted you to defend Saga Frontier, which you said that you were uh, enjoying. And we've been a little more down on around these parts, but uh, we always appreciate your perspective on all that <laughs> stuff. You you will uh, oh man <laughs> you will not get much of a defense from me but we'll we'll save that for for the time. Well, Jason, I've been reading your book. It is excellent, of course. I'm really flabbergasted by the amount of reporting that you managed to squeeze into this book. Like, could you tell me a little bit about like the the legwork that you had to do with this? Um, yeah, well, so this is my second book. So I um, learned a lot the first time around and and I'm used to um, doing it. But yeah, it was just a lot of getting on the phone with people, a lot of interviewing and, and chatting with people and trying to connect with as many people as possible. And, and something that I did and tried very deliberately to do for this book, as opposed to so my first book, Bloodstone and Pixels was like a, a collection of stories about how games are made and each chapter focused on a specific game. Um, and this book press reset is about it's more about human stories and what happens to people after game studios shut down the kind of the the ruin and recovery that follows that um and what i wanted to do very deliberately was focus on a few 
specific people and just tell their stories. So whereas in the first book, it might have been, okay, I want to talk to a few dozen people who worked on this game. In the second book, it's more like, okay, I want to talk to you and then talk to you a bunch more times and then talk to people who get to, who know you um, or people who worked with you. So it was a very different process. It was more like a, a, a few different profiles or series of profiles um, than it was like a more a more um collection of of people who all worked on the same thing um but yeah but it was it was uh rewarding and and satisfying and um i'm glad that uh, the book is uh the book is resonating with people yeah it really brought me back uh to some of the big stories that have taken place over the past decade and it was a real reminder of just what a freaking debacle the 38 studios ended up being <laughs> yeah man it's it's quite a story even even having known i mean one of the things that i found remarkable when i was telling when i was reporting on this uh on all the stories in this book really is that a lot of the times i knew kind of the broad strokes and i remembered a lot of like the the beats of what happened so like with 38 studios i remembered that like okay um they took money from rhode island they shut down um kurt Schilling, all the, the big picture stuff um released one game but it wasn't even them that sort of thing but then when i started hearing the details the details still managed to blow me away um especially with 38 i mean just hearing about people who like uh the company took said it was taking over their mortgages during the move when they Oof. moved from massachusetts to rhode island and then they after the company suddenly ran out of money they all got saddled with those mortgages back um so people wound up with mortgages in massachusetts and rent in rhode island and it was <laughs> oh, no. almost like devastating um but also one of the things that i really didn't know a lot about was the story of big huge games which was um the subsidiary of 38 studios that actually released amalur reckoning um a lot of people associate amalur reckoning with 38 but 38 did not actually make that game big huge mm. games did um and i hadn't realized the the kind of the, the turbulence that they went through at the end of things because this was a studio that like really had nothing to do with 38 studios other than 38 being its parent company but they all came in one day and stopped getting paid just like 38 did and then they went through their own just wild saga and and they thought they were going to be saved multiple times and Ooh. just weren't and it's all just really sad and and brutal and and speaks to the the volatility that is just so common in this industry yeah, it seemed like the keystone moment was when Lincoln Chaffee, who I believe was governor at the time, said that he was trying to keep 38 Studios solvent, and that instantly caused all investors to get spooked. Big Huge Games was going to basically go independent again under the 2K label, I believe, and Take-Two called in and said, ah, hi, no, as soon as they heard that, and that deal fell apart. It was really wild how one politician statement basically set a whole set of dominoes falling that completely erased two studios. Yep. 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 And if the timing had just been a tiny bit different, like literally executives from take two were on a plane about to sign this deal with big, huge games, excuse me, with big, huge games for the sequel to Amalur um, and to make big, huge games, like a, a separate studio, like they were going to spin out from 38. That was the night that Lincoln Chaffee said this. It was literally the same day. It's like almost hard to believe the, 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 that it happened this way. It's just crazy. That's you're, devastating. You were covering uh, the whole 38 Studios debacle as it was happening, right? You were at Kotaku at this point? 
Um, vaguely. I, I don't think I wrote a lot about it. I think we had other people who were mostly covering it, but I did remember like some of the, some of the specifics and, and some of the details as it was happening. I think it was, it was like my third or fourth month at Kotaku when this started happening. And I was like, Oh, this is weird. I don't think I realized uh, when it was happening. I don't think I realized just how dramatic and intense it was. I don't think a lot of people did. There wasn't a ton of reporting on ex- all the details, except in Rhode Island. There's a great piece um, by Jason Schwartz in Boston Magazine um, that that hit like the summer after it all happened. That was just the the, the um, details of, of everything that went down. And that was really good. But other than that, there wasn't a ton of like, like, ground level like behind the scenes reporting about exactly what had gone down and how it had all happened we just started hearing like tricklings of rumors from like anonymous message board posts and that sort of stuff yeah there was a lot of uh sadness about missed opportunities in particular from mm-hmm. big huge games who were saying uh if we had only had a chance to make this sequel and apply what we had learned maybe that could have been our witcher 2 and then maybe the third yeah. game could have been our witcher 3 and i don't know about that but they I think the original Kingdom of Amalur, at the very least, was a really good start. And as he pointed out, was generally praised for his combat. And people are like, yeah, this is a solid start to a potentially interesting new franchise. And it just uh, never got off the ground as a result. Yeah. And I think that that when you have that combat like that, that is so hard to nail down, just like a fundamentally like good feeling game that once you have that and you can build on that, I think there's there's just a lot of potential there as opposed to a game that was maybe like a cool story, but just mediocre actual moment to moment gameplay where I think it's a lot harder to build off of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot to like about Amalur Reckoning and I certainly believe that like a sequel could have been pretty cool, could have definitely competed with, with the Dragon Age Inquisitions of the world and the other kind of RPG heavyweights. On the flip side, uh, when they were talking about how Kurt Schilling was involved in this, it reminded me of the, so everybody has this kind of dream of being able to make their own personal dream game and having unlimited resources <laughs> to do so. And Kurt Schilling really approached this as a fan where he would be calling leads at seemingly all hours and saying, well, what if centaurs? And they were like, Kurt, <laughs> Kurt the centaurs cannot fit in the room. We can't do the centaurs. And he said, but we're going to have centaurs, damn it. Yeah, it's God. It's so funny his obsession with centaurs and and um, Kat. I know you're a sports fan. I, I think it was Alex Rodriguez, if I remember correctly, who was also obsessed with yes. centaurs. Had that picture. Well, that of was athletes and centaurs. It's just a thing. I don't know why. Um, I was talking to the the defector guys about this as well. It's just so funny. But yeah, no, it's it's one of those kind of typical like it's it's something you hear about a lot so the anecdote that i love the most is when um this guy named joe cadera who's a big huge games he led up the combat team he got an email from kurt Schilling one day who was just like hey i just saw this god of war trailer can we do this and that sort of thing is like so common I, any game developer mm-hmm. who's who's anyone who's worked on a game has heard a story like this where like some lead got some clueless email from an executive or a director who saw something cool in a trailer and was like we have to have this and then the next Next week they'll forget about it and like say something else entirely it's just the most typical thing but i think because it's kurt schilling and like just imagining getting that from this is by the way nowadays everybody knows kurt schilling is kind of the breitbart nut job but um this was before that like he was known as a conservative minded guy but he wasn't 
known as as he wasn't he wasn't who he is today um so just imagine getting this email from this like former baseball player who now runs your whole company has never made a game before uh won the world series is just like hey i like this trailer can we have that it's just so bizarre <laughs> and funny um and also i mean i i find him fascinating because i everything i've heard from people who worked for him is that like this was just a charismatic like genuinely amicable and friendly guy who like a lot of people felt inspired by which really is at odds with who you know him as today which is kind of like uh, <laughs> not that um the curtailing of today is not someone who you would think of as like a great a great leader um and then also it's it's in contrast with like how he actually ran the company so it's just i i find him really really interesting because it just shows that like people are never cartoon villains like people are always multifaceted um as much as we sometimes like to believe that that these stories have heroes and villains in them and and in some ways they do even the person who like ran the company into the ground and wound up becoming this like transphobic hateful guy um even he had his positive qualities too and i think that's really interesting yeah he really went off the rails after 38 studios went away but you know hindsight is 2020 when i look at 38 studios but man there were so many warning signs like (laughs) a lot of people will say never ever put your own money into a company when you're initially Mm -hmm. getting started and he put like 50 million dollars into this whole thing (laughs) and he's spending exorbitantly it's obvious that they that they don't really have a process for getting an actual game shipped, which you obviously have to do, but they were just creating all of this crazy art and they were having these insane perks for all of these developers. And he just could never find investors. An MMO, wanted to make an MMO at the gate, the hardest type of game to make they wanted to do. Yeah, it's just totally ridiculous. And then on... The other story that I found really interesting, and so I was reading your article, your book, and I was kind of live tweeting it a little bit. And there was one passage that really stood out to me, which was the EA executive coming to Warren Spector and saying, Warren, your games, they break even, but they don't have a chance to scale and blow up. And why would oh. I give you money to do this? And in my heart, I just felt a real fury and i had to tweet this out and it resonated with a lot of people as a result Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's kind of the the whole the fundamental like problem uh uh that's just driving driving the the wheels of publicly traded companies and capitalism in general is just like making money is not enough you have to make as much money as humanly possible and you have to make more money than yeah you made more last. money year over year yeah that it's just so sickening and just counterproductive and destructive and it really just caught like like drives talent away from companies and just is is just bad news all around um and we so we also see that with dead space in in press reset um how like the dead space games they were all making money but they just weren't big enough for ea it's just like mm-hmm. all these companies have to be conservative and risk averse and and just go for the things that are going to be bazillion dollar hits they're not interesting interested in just like plain old profit makers and that's so depressing because it just makes no sense like anyone who wanted to make a sustainable business would just be like we're just we're, we, we're just doing a sustainable like we just want to pay ourselves a healthy salary and like and and be able to put food on our plates and maybe go on a vacation every once in a while and that's the end of it but because we are in this world where like share 
shareholders are demanding constant growth and you're not considered successful unless you're making more money this fiscal quarter than you were the the following year or, or the previous year's fiscal quarter um it's just you you create this not only is it unsustainable but it's just destroys art um, and you see it not just with EA, but with Activision, Blizzard, and Take-Two, and all these publicly traded companies. It's really just miserable all around. Jason, you did a really great job of painting kind of a portrait of Warren. It was an excellent profile. And I, I think one of my main takeaways from your kind of uh, reporting on Warren Spector and his career was that the guy was a dreamer. And I think that resulted in some some of the greatest RPGs ever made. He's one of the most important figures in certainly gaming history, but it struck me as somewhat irresponsible in the way that he never really seemed to care much about how money was managed. And he mm -hmm. was putting himself into situations, I feel, where maybe like in a, you know, a very risky business like video games that, you know, he's like, he's dreaming big, but you got to take care of your people, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't even think it's like, I don't necessarily think like he's dreaming too big, but I do think that like he had a tendency to, um, to, to just like be cantankerous when it came to executives. He had a tendency to argue with them and fight them and exhaust them, um, <laughs> which pretty much anyone who's a creative person can relate to, but it's probably not the the ideal characteristic if you are running a business. And, and I think that Warren, I mean, certainly when I was talking to him, he was um, very reflective and uh, kind of regretful about how he handled the Disney situation. Um, and I'm not sure if, I mean, people should go read the chapter of Press Reset, but, but he it's certainly clear that Disney wanted out of console games, but Warren likes to wonder if he had gotten along better with Disney and maybe played the game a little bit better with their executives and, and didn't fight them so much and didn't get in screaming matches and didn't uh, hurl a remote controller Dang. <laughs> across the room during one meeting. Um, maybe things might have worked out. But then again, maybe not. Maybe Disney was always going to shut them down and get out of console development. But certainly, I think I think Warren would would certainly be the first to admit that like he has could have could have done a better job when dealing some of with some of these executives but then again i mean i think that like uh there's a great quote in there from art min who um helped co-found junction point and worked with warren for a while um and he says warren the thing i like about warren is that he is always interested in making n plus one um money where n is the amount that it would take for me to be able to make a new game and i think that's like that's a, such a healthier more sustainable mm -hmm. attitude towards this thing where it's like you know what this game doesn't need to make a billion dollars i will be happy if it makes 10 million dollars because that's what it costs to make and that's all i really care about is like a sustainable economy here and i think that is such a a, a better perspective on this whole thing like like it's it's I don't think anyone out there, like I certainly don't think that the artiste like needs to not be concerned with money at all and should only focus on the art. Like I, I think that's a very naive way of looking at, at, at art these days and looking at game development. But, um, but I think the kind of 
strat like compromising between like the artistic vision end of it and the business vision of an end of it is a healthy way to go. The problem is that at these publicly traded companies, that's not an option. The option is you have to make as much money as possible. We need loot boxes. We need a billion dollars in revenue from in-game microtransactions every year or else this game is not worth our investment. Um, And yeah, I mean, in the quote you excerpted, uh, Kat, and tweeted about, it's uh, the executive, the unnamed EA executive mentions Chris Robert and uh, who hilariously enough is now making <laughs> working on a three hundred million dollar game, um, and how he uh, he uh, the executive could give him a hundred million dollars and either get something amazing, something that's a, makes a billion, or uh, a tax write off, and that's like that fundamentally that's the problem <laughs> with with publicly traded companies in the games industry in a nutshell. That that quote right there. Another thing that stood out to me was your passage, uh, the passage about the metrics and mm-hmm. how. When he, I think he was making Deus Ex and executives were saying, well, why are you putting in a stealth? Our metrics show that the people don't really like that. And he's like, I don't care. This is good for my game. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that, okay, so I don't want to be the person who's, you know, going, ah, advanced metrics, being cantankerous about that. But I do think that there is a tendency within game development to treat the metrics uh, and the data that is coming in from gameplay as a religion, and you should follow that exclusively and never stray away from it because I feel like it kind of boxes people in and it the the tendency to follow focus testing and advanced metrics is maybe why we see so many samey and slightly boring and very safe uh, AAA blockbusters. And I know that they mm-hmm. can't afford to take risks with these games, but it makes me a little sad that it doesn't feel like there's kind of room for people to be able to follow their creative bliss outside of the indie, uh, mm-hmm. the indie realm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless you're like death stranding, um, mm. you have to follow the same, the same pattern. Everything has to be an open world with a skill tree and, and quests and all the other, the checklists that you have to, they have to fill out for every AAA game um yeah no it's it's an interesting thing because focus groups can also be really powerful and just play testing in general can be really powerful in games because um games are an interactive medium so you kind of need to know how a player is feeling at any given time and if like if a if a gamer if the player is um having the correct responses to any given moment of your game i I know that's a big thing at naughty dog for example where they'll like have people play through the game and like be measuring their facial expressions and like 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 really carefully watching them to make sure that they're they're hitting the right emotions and like they find the characters likable enough and stuff like that um and i think that can actually be really helpful and useful from an artistic point of view um the the thing is that i think that that sometimes um, executives take it a little too far. There's another quote in the Warren Spector um, chapter where Warren Spector is trying to pitch a Wild West game and and someone's like, oh, those don't sell. And he's like, well, that's because we haven't made one that like <laughs> yep, is good enough to sell. And I think that is really it in a nutshell. Like game developers don't want to, um, game developers all want to make the next Minecraft or the next Roblox, but they're not willing to take the creative risks that would lead to that. It's funny, I'm actually doing a story um, 
Kat, you had a great story about uh, uh, all the Blizzard people leaving the other day. Um, and I've actually been working on a story kind of similar that's about um, all these startups that Blizzard people are are coming up with and and the kind of the trend of of like Blizzard people having this network of indie game studios. And it's really cool to see. Um, and one of the things that I found really interesting, um, and I think you mentioned this in your report as well, is that there's been this glut of VC investments mm-hmm. in games recently and, and venture capital um seem more interested in games than they ever have been before and i think what one of the things that's really interesting about the vc approach as opposed to the game publisher approach is that a vc is willing to be like you know what i'm going to throw money at 10 different games and it's okay if nine of them fail as long as Mm -hmm. one of them is big enough is successful enough and that's the kind of approach that gets you like the, the next Minecraft, the next Roblox, as opposed to the big publisher thing where it's like, we're going to th- throw money in 10 different games and they all have to be these open world AAA monstrosities and we're going to be focus testing and and kind of carefully keeping our eye on all of these as opposed to the like, I'm going to throw money at 10 different games and, and they can just all do their own things and hopefully one of them is big enough to be a success. It's it's a very different approach um, and I think that, that it might lead to um, more fruitful rewards for those VC investors than um, the game publishers are seeing with their attempts at bazillion dollar uh, franchises only. You mentioned in your book, uh, you kind of wondered if Warren Spector hadn't come in just a hair too early because there was a point where perhaps he could have benefited heavily from, say, the explosion of crowdfunding. And something that at, I, I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, when Aiden Chronicles and Sea of Stars came out, mm-hmm. and both mm-hmm. uh, were two of the most successful crowdfunded ventures um, of the year. And I wonder what you think of like those two games in particular, and the ability for nostalgic RPGs to really uh, attract the interest in crowdfunding. Yeah, I mean, Aiden, I've never been more excited for oh, a yeah. Pixar project than than that yeah. one. But also, coincidentally, I just saw yet like yesterday that it was delayed. So um, <sighs> the Kickstarter, COVID the times, Kickstarter, right? yeah. Well, I mean, also just Kickstarter in mm-hmm. general. Yeah, we're gonna get a kick. I don't think there's a single Kickstarter game that has launched when it said it was going to launch. Um, so who knows? I mean, these Kickstarter things like. Um, their their failures or never come out more often than not. So who knows? Um, but yeah, but it also Kickstarter also has been a useful tool for people. And yeah, I mean it's it's cool to see these creative people like be able to find investments from elsewhere. And it's sort of like the VC thing where like if you're if you're working outside of the traditional publisher system, then you don't necessarily need to be risk averse and focus test heavy and all the other things that game, big game publishers kind of require because they're making this big investment in you. Um, but then the flip side of that, as we've seen a million times with Kickstarter, is that you don't really have anyone holding you accountable and refusing to pay you unless you do what you're expected to do. So that that in itself can be and like can let uh, unchecked ambitious uh, ambitions can always get out of hand and it can be it can be a mess. Um, yeah, that can also be uh, cause a lot of problems so yeah i mean like anything else it has its it has its pros and cons as a tool but um but yeah i mean the, some kickstarter games have been fantastic like pillars of eternity was awesome shovel knight is awesome there there have been so many good games to come from that that um it's it's uh, uh you have to respect it yeah it kind of goes back to what you're actually saying earlier about uh that whole 
thing with the developers and one game out of 10 that's actually great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kickstarter has a lot of disasters, but for every, say, 10 disasters, you get one Undertale. So there's always mm-hmm. there's yep. always hope for that platform. I think it's... Yep, uh, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, to to your point earlier, Kat, um, I think that the the if War Inspector had been um had like if uh, gone and started junction point a few years later i do wonder what would have happened like if he would have still sold to disney because i think that like one of the things that that i didn't actually include in the book it got cut from the the final version of that chapter is that seamus blackley um who is one of the most interesting men in gaming has done all these crazy things and and wound up uh he's one of the the creators of the xbox wound up becoming war inspector's agent um and helping facilitate the deal with disney um one of the things that he was exploring was this idea of like taking a bunch of game like creating a game fund essentially where a bunch of people would all invest in a pool and and they would wind up like supporting these creative people and that's the type of thing that we're seeing more of these days um like i mentioned with vcs and and it seems like there are other there are other big funds floating around other other forms of investment um that that um the game developers can find outside of the traditional publisher model and i do wonder like if junction point had started today what would have happened there um but these days i mean war inspector is working on system shock 3 with his new company other side games with paul Nurath, and um so far things have seemed dismal there they were oh. ran into some trouble had to lay off some people um wound up getting taken over by tencent or the project wound up getting taken over by tencent and who knows what's going to happen there um so yeah i don't know my final takeaway is that a lot of your stories were in that range of maybe 2007 to about 2013 mm-hmm. and i'm just reminded of how glad I am that that period is over when executives were going <laughs> console games are on their way out. It's all about yep. free to play mobile, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God, man, it's, it's that era is so embarrassing in retrospect because it led to so much catastrophe mm-hmm. and it was all just based on these prognostications that were just totally wrong. Everybody thinking that console gaming was on its way out. Um, and all these, these big publishers just like were super conservative as a result. And yeah, it was just a, a mess. I mean, that um, probably killed the Xbox One in its own way because Microsoft made a giant bet on casual gaming with Kinect, assuming that mm-hmm. that was where things were going. And it completely gutted Xbox Game Studios and, you, you know, the whole story there. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that was, I mean, kind of wrong person in charge of mm-hmm. that whole initiative. <laughs> and it's really amazing how one you change one executive and suddenly your fortunes change entirely. And it's like, it's remarkable to see what Phil Spencer has been able to do since taking over from Don Matrick. But yeah, no, it's it's 100% true. Uh, although I will say that like, uh, and I, I made this point in the epilogue of Press Reset, um, even though a lot of the stories that I covered were from that era, a lot of the shutdowns I covered were from that era, there have been so many shutdowns mm-hmm. since then as well. Like this is a problem that has not gone away and doesn't seem to be going away, which is why in the final chapter of the book, I explore some solutions and try to figure out like how how does this stop? How do we make this uh, career sustainable for more people and make it so like game developers can actually like work in healthy happy ways without burning out or or having to just move across the country every single time they need a new job etc etc so um yeah i mean 
even though you're right that that era where it's very good that we're no longer in that era and that everyone is kind of recognized like oh man like console gaming and and kind of core gaming is is not going anywhere and in fact has even expanded over the past year or two um we are still seeing the same volatility. I mean, there are layoffs, mm-hmm. layoffs all the time and shutdowns and COVID alone caused a few shutdowns. But but also more recently, we saw Telltale a couple of years ago and, and Capcom Vancouver, which is responsible for uh, the Dead Rising games. They shut down and and Cliff Wazinski Studio, Bosky and so many others just shut have shut down and shut down like while I was in the process of writing the book. So, yeah, it's it's a brutal industry is is the point. And I hope people who read Press Reset just um, I, I think people will, will, won't find it too bleak because it's it's very much it's very deliberately not a depressing book. Um, it's an optimistic book. I think it's 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 maybe uh, it, bleak, but optimistic, I would say bleak, but hopeful, I think is the best <laughs> way to put it, because um, I do think that 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 things can change and have to change and will change. Yeah, I think it's a huge problem. And you've done a lot of great reporting over the years on this very subject. And I think that it's a problem, like you see so many game developers and so many talented game developers just burning out by, you know, their early 30s and just not mm-hmm. making an actual career in game development and saying, why am I, why am I killing myself for this stupid industry? I'm going to, I want to raise a family. I want to be able to not worry about losing my job at the drop of a hat. And it, mm-hmm. I do yep. think that so many game executives say, well, there's always more talent where that is, but I think that at the end of the day we got to figure this out and maybe maybe like the new ai tools that are coming around will be able to lessen workload maybe we'll be able to find a way to not make large games such a (laughs) zero-sum game where if it fails goodbye to your studio but Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a problem that has to be solved within the industry i think yeah agreed Agreed. Um, and I mean, the one one thing that I found really interesting and kind of uh, I'm hopeful about um, is that I actually start I, I finished most of the book, I would say, last February. Um, and then about that time, we started hearing about something called COVID-19. Oh um, mm. And suddenly everybody's working remotely. And I had already like been talking about remote work in the book as like a possible um, solution for some of these problems. So um, the fact that that suddenly it, it became a mandatory thing for so many people was really interesting. And and I'm very curious to see like what companies do after the pandemic kind of uh, comes to a halt and, and we have to figure out what the new normal looks like. Because I think that like if people had to work remotely or if people could work remotely, sorry, then I think that that it would suddenly change the equation because if you don't have to move across the country or across the world every time you lose your job, then maybe you can make things more sustainable. Like it would still suck to lose your job, but if you're just applying and for, for new jobs anywhere, then it can be a lot more feasible to keep bouncing around like that. Yeah, I think we've really proven that uh, remote remote work does actually, it is is sustainable. It is something that can happen. And mm-hmm. now it's just up to the employers to say, okay, well, we're going to be flexible. Or there are still way too many who going by the tittle-tattle are saying, no, you have to be here. You have to be in this office so we can, they don't say, so we can keep an eye on you. But that's pretty much what they are saying. Well, Jason, you're also a big RPG fan. And that's part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show. The last time we chatted... You were playing Saga Frontier Remastered, and you were really digging it. 
Yeah, I mean, okay, so really digging in is a relative term. I, I, think that, <laughs> I mean, I was enjoying Second Frontier Remaster because I have a lot of nostalgia for it. I grew up mm. playing it. I don't think that people will enjoy it if it's like their their first time playing it um, because it's not a very good game. Like, it's not it's not a game that is designed to be played. It's a game that's designed to be like broken and um, to I guess played. I saw someone someone say uh, describe these games as games that need to be taken on their own terms which I think is a very yeah. apt way of putting it, where essentially you need to accept that like this game is going to mess around with you and this game is going to um, create no-win situations where you might actually <laughs> not be able to finish it. Um, and you just have to kind of like read a guide or figure it out and do trial and error and figure it out for yourself. There's no signposting. There's no like uh, the game does not hold your hand at all, or maybe it does hold your hand and then walks you to a volcano and then throws you in <laughs> second um, style. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I don't think it's a good game and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone except people who are like nostalgic for it or like people who are gluttons for punishment and like love the saga series. Um, and I don't even mean gluttons for punishment in the way that you might like appreciate a Souls game where you have to just kind of learn mastery over time because it's not even that. It's not like a game where it teaches you how to get better and you can get better to overcome obstacles. It's a game where you have to know that if you don't bring this party member to this place, then you will screw yourself over. And like the only way to know that is to read the guide. So you better go find the guide. And it's just kind of nonsense. And I think most <laughs> of the saga games are like that, unfortunately. They keep on um, coming, though. Yeah, I mean, they have cool ideas. There's some cool... Second Frontier has great music. It has some really cool character designs and good stuff. But, like, so much of it is so disjointed that it's, like, kind of a, a, a very weird experience to play it. It's, like, it feels like you're playing, I don't know, like a series of dreams almost because, like, every scene <laughs> is just, like, abrupt... has an abrupt ending and is feels incomplete. The whole game just feels very incomplete. Um, so, no, I, I'm not going to sit here and defend Second Frontier. I just enjoyed playing the remaster because... A, it lets you flee from any random encounter, so that that itself makes the game way less tedious than it ever was on the PlayStation than it was on the PlayStation, um, and therefore more playable um, than it's ever been before. And B, it's a really good remaster; like it looks really good, sounds really good, just runs really stably. Um, so, like from a technical perspective, it's it's a good product. It's just that the game itself, if you aren't used to it or if you don't know what you're getting into, then uh <laughs> not, not something you'll want to play yeah <laughs> what do you think of the rumor that square is super invested in uh the saga games because kawazu continues to have a large influence over on the company um based on what i know about japanese companies 100 percent <laughs> like there's no way that's not the case and i, I it makes 100 percent sense right like there's no um similar figurehead for like the for like chrono trigger or um or or um i don't know what are some other like, like xeno gears yeah i mean I way, like you final have fantasy well six. the funny thing is you have a lot of the old school final fantasy guys they're still around kitase obviously is still is right. still there um i think with final fantasy 6 actually i mean i spoke to kitase once about like the ports because as i'm sure listeners of of blood god know um the the ports of final fantasy 6 on steam and and uh mobile are just not great like the graphics are just yeah. totally off um and i spoke to i asked kitase about this once and he essentially like didn't know it was a problem um so i'm not sure like maybe it's not maybe in japan they don't complain as much about it or they don't care as much um but or maybe the the U.S. feedback just never got to them. So maybe maybe they just don't know. I don't know. 
Um, but in terms of like like uh, uh, Kawazu still being there and having a high important position at Square and therefore being able to do what he wants with Saga, I'm sure that's 100 percent true. And that that said, like I'm sure the games are selling well enough to justify um, this this investment as well. Like I'm sure it it was not super expensive to remaster Saga Frontier, and I'm sure that like it it did well enough to earn. Um, it's money back and and same with like um with uh with grace red grace or whatever it was called and all these other random saga productions that keep coming out like <laughs> out there they're making millions but i i'm sure they're making their money back because i don't think square even even if he had even if he's like had that much power at the company i don't think he would have enough power to just consistently make unprofitable games um but that said, I mean, this fits nicely to what we were talking about earlier, where like if a company allows this one guy to like oversee a series and the company knows that none of his games are going to be these billion dollar sellers, but lets him keep doing it regardless. That is awesome, actually. Um, and it's really cool to me that like like even though Saga might not be everyone's cup of tea and I don't think the three of us are like here hankering for more Saga games when we could be getting like uh, a new Chrono or like uh, a new Z gears or whatever a new brave fencer musashi or whatever uh, else square enix is sitting on or like a new uh, uh soul blazer or like any of those other like classics that are remasters of any of those classics that square is just sitting on and doing nothing with um uh, i think that the fact that square just allows this one guy to do what he wants i think is actually pretty cool and and would like to see more of that of big publishers just being willing to to allow their creatives to do whatever even if it's not going to be super profitable and even if it's not going to be loved by everybody i agree looking ahead to the future we're in the thick of announcement season i assume you were paying attention to the dragon quest stream last night do you have any main takeaways from that yeah, well, so first of all, it's funny that like only Dragon Quest, they're they're like a, a handful of series that could get away with the whole we're making a new game, here's the logo, that's it. <laughs> Sonic and, get it too today. Sonic yeah, didn't well, give us a logo. Well, but I was gonna say and still be like buzzed about and hyped about by everybody True. on the internet. And I think with Dragon Quest that was the case. With Sonic was absolutely not, not the case. People were like, Oh yeah, new Sonic game, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> At least that's what I saw, the buzz that I saw. Um but with Dragon Quest, it's like all we need is a flaming logo and everybody will freak out um a couple things so first of all i'm so psyched about the dragon quest 3 remaster yeah, and the hell yeah. style so um, big on that yeah and i would love to see them like like i would if if they want to take the octopath team and just have them do remakes of every single old school final fantasy and dragon quest in that style bam i'm on yeah, board i I'm will on be board. playing every single one of those um so love that um especially because i I, as I'm sure you guys know, was was disappointed. One of the few critics who was really disappointed by Octopath Traveler. And so I would love to see that team just take the graphics and use them for better games. Um, but the other thing that I thought was really noteworthy about the Dragon Quest stream is that um, for most of the games they announced, other than I think Dragon Quest X offline, um, for most of the games they announced, it, they said very specifically simultaneous worldwide yes. release. I noticed Which that. I think is really cool and very uncharacteristic for Dragon Quest. Even the most recent Dragon, like 11, Dragon Quest 11 was released in Japan like a year before it finally came to the US. So the fact that we're actually going to get like Square is finally globalizing their one big Japan series, I think is really, really cool and very happy to to see that as well yeah that made me very glad um 
Do we even know if we're getting Dragon Quest X offline? I know online they made it very clear you're not getting this game yeah. offline. It didn't say anything. <laughs> no, they just said they said Japan only for now, at least. They did, they said no plans for, for worldwide release. That's too bad. Mm. What's your take on this Final Fantasy by Team Ninja action game that suddenly got rumored very heavily and almost <laughs> certainly looks to be announced during E3? Yeah, um, I'm way on board if it's real. Um, I I would play the hell out of that game. <laughs> um, I mean, Team Ninja makes really good stuff. Um, Neo is really cool. Um, and uh, just the idea of... I, I love the idea of a Final Fantasy game that's set like before the first one because that's such a good setting and has mm. so much potential. I mean, the world of Final Fantasy 1 is really interesting and could be fleshed out a lot more and there's just a lot of like interesting drama and, and apocalyptic stuff and ruin and um a lot of like like stuff with the ancient race and and um yeah there's a lot of good material there a lot of good potential lore there and also i mean i love souls games so hey yeah give me give me a final fantasy souls game especially a more accessible one that's like more along the lines of jedi fallen order i think that could work like exceptionally well um it really feels i i just i said this on twitter um a little while ago but it really feels like square enix japan has just been firing on all cylinders recently yeah um, yeah yeah like with since essentially since um like i don't know 2017 2018 like right after 15 final fantasy 15 it felt like they all got together and said we are not letting this happen again yeah we're like we're <laughs> moving to stuff to, yeah god we're getting our shit together we're moving stuff to unreal engine we're like putting our our focus on like making good games and not just like screwing around with tools all day um i believe final fantasy 7 remake was also on the unreal engine i, I think that yeah. like like talking to a lot of game developers the number one problem in game development is always we tried to build our own tools at the same mm -hmm. time as the game and everything went awry um so to see a company like square just embracing third-party tools and having something that that everyone knows well and works really well um and just using that for a lot of its games i think is is really smart and efficient and is probably one of the biggest factors behind this new um kind of renaissance of square games that we're seeing recently yeah everything i hear i've heard about square enix is uh, E3 show uh, suggests that they have a fair number of exciting announcements to make, and I'm actually really looking forward to it. It might be my most anticipated conference outside of Nintendo this year, which, I mean, it sounds like there's going to be a lot going on with Nintendo as well. So. I'm mm -hmm. vibrating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not you're <laughs> vibrating? I'm vibrating, because yeah, you have Square Enix plus I am a Final Fantasy XIV stand, and there's got to be more Endwalker mm. stuff coming, and I'm just like, Give it to me all, all of it, all of Nadia, it. Nadia, I, I've tried, man, I've been trying to get through <laughs> Final Fantasy fourteen for so long now. I'm like, last I played, I, I was halfway through Stormblood, but like, man, the combat is just so monotonous and it's so hard to like, as much as I enjoy everything else about it, just having to go and like, okay, here's another quest. Okay. Some guys popped up, got to fight them, got to hit yeah, one, two, three, four over and over again. It's just so boring. What class were you playing? Paladin. Oh, did you try any other classes? Maybe you'd like them more. I don't know. I have, but it's hard to to switch over because I would either have to start from one to get to know the class or I start at like 
50 or 60 or whatever and suddenly I have 400 skills that I don't know anything <laughs> about and I'm like how do I do this so I, I just kind of default to playing what I know and yeah I mean it's it's just MMO combat just does not do it for me and, yeah, and one of the reasons that I'm like one of the reasons I'm super excited for Final Fantasy 16 is that um, it seems like it's going to have all of the goodness of that lore and music and storytelling of Final Fantasy 14 combined with like yeah. action combat which i think is going to be the perfect combo i think that's why a lot of people who play final fantasy 14 are actually very excited for 16 because mm-hmm. if you hear a lot of like negativity about the game like oh it looks so bland oh this and that but those of us who know yoshi p and know the scenario writers and know like how great the story is and the music is because i think Sokin's doing the music for 16 we're mm-hmm. just like no we're so excited that you finally get a chance to play a single player final fantasy 14 like this is this is real guys like we are so excited for you i'm excited for everybody Mm, yep agreed on the western side you mentioned that starfield is likely to be teased but its release date's probably going to be 2022 is that about right um yeah i mean starfield they're going to announce a specific release date i mean i i know that much and yeah i mean there have been a lot of rumors floating around and none of them are really correct and one of the reasons that i wanted to say something was because i i know that people's expectations have been set super high like since a couple of months ago people were saying they're they're gonna be out this fall or like they're gonna be out early 2022 and none of that is true um <laughs> <laughs> so yeah um you'll see a release date at e3 um at least as 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 far as I know the current plan is to to show a release date at E3 and it's for late next year and I'll leave this specific date for to them to announce I won't blow up their spot there but um but yeah that's that's the current plan at the time of this recording uh there's a big strong rumor going around this is, right now it's almost 4 p.m et that we're going to hear a drop about the Nintendo the new Nintendo Switch tonight uh do you believe in this yeah I wouldn't be shocked at all um uh, uh, Bloomberg, my my colleagues at Bloomberg reported this morning that it is going to be shown and announced before E3, um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. The main one being that then um, games can start mm-hmm. showing, like showcasing themselves on it. Because I think it's really, I think one of the reasons we haven't heard a lot from Nintendo recently is because they're waiting to talk about the Switch Pro, so they can be like, "Here's footage of Breath of the Wild 2 or whatever else running on Switch Pro at 60 frames a second or whatever it is." Yeah. So I think that is really, really important as part of their strategy, and I imagine we'll see it extremely soon, maybe even before. The this podcast goes live um, yeah and then and then we'll see games running on it not just from nintendo but from third parties also and and i think it'll make a lot more sense why they had to announce it ahead of the show well hello to the future for everyone yes. listening to this last point uh before we let you go microsoft mm-hmm. is it a little bit of a prove it year at e3 this year for you <laughs> um <laughs> it feels like we've said that every e3 for the past <laughs> decade doesn't it um, it really yeah. does I mean, I, 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 if it is a prove it year, I don't know that they will prove it because like we are still not seeing really the fruits of their acquisition spree. Um, certainly not going to see any of that stuff this year. Um, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get your hopes up too much, um, especially because of COVID. Like I think that yeah. that it, it might be a muted E three um, in a lot of ways uh, for a lot of the third parties, and I think this fall especially is going to be a little bit slim pickings. Um, unless Nintendo comes out and blows us all away and, and shows off all these cool games that are coming to Switch Pro this fall, which which is possible. I wouldn't be shocked. I know a lot of people just are not are pessimistic about Breath of the Wild 2 coming this year, but I wouldn't be shocked if it came this year. I, d- I don't know. I don't have any inside info on Yeah, that Nintendo one, but... tends to like 
not wait too long, uh, with the ex rare exception like Metroid 4, and I think they're mm -hmm. regretting, sorry, Metroid Prime 4, and I think they're regretting all of that right now. Yeah, all those Zelda games get delayed a bazillion times. Every single Zelda game is delayed ah, multiple times. Um, so I don't know. Um, but I but I also wouldn't be shocked if like Zelda Breath of the Wild 2 was supposed to come out last fall and was right. because of COVID to this fall or something like that. I, I wouldn't be shocked if that was that was part of the whole calculus here. Um, and it's like Zelda's 35th, so maybe we'll see some other stuff. Ah, um, yes. uh, certainly have heard that the Wind Maker, Wind Waker, Twilight Princess thing is is real. So I guess we'll see if that is mm -hmm. a real if that comes to fruition this this season but outside Nintendo, which to me is 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 a wild card um i do not expect uh, a huge e3 i do not expect a lot of stuff to be like oh my god coming this fall like i expect if we're gonna see stuff it's gonna be stuff that's teased for next year and beyond yeah um, which is often the case at e3 to be fair but this year especially i think we're starting to see the the real impacts of covid because like um uh, first of all, a lot of game companies just kind of uh, uh, sped up their production pipelines and move people around to try to get last fall's games out the door, which they were able to do. But that had a big impact on this year's games. Mm -hmm. And second of all, I think a lot of the games that were in production that weren't like last year's games, I think were a lot of those were later in production as opposed to this year's games, which maybe were doing stuff like mocap and um, performance capture, which is really tough to do uh, from home. Some people have been able to pull it off, but it's really tough to do. Um, and other stuff that like that is earlier stuff that you might need to do in person or maybe that might be harder to do remotely um brainstorming stuff and prototyping and iterating and play testing and all that stuff. So yeah, I, I I'm not super optimistic about this E3, especially since it's so friggin' weird. Like it's all virtual, and who knows what's gonna what it's even gonna look like. Like I'm I'm planning out E3 uh, coverage, and I just have no idea what's going yeah. on. Last year, I mean yesterday, like yesterday morning, I would have said there's no freaking way that the Switch Pro is coming out this year with all of the chip <laughs> shortages and everything. So right. when the rumors started circulating around midday, I was like. Really? I don't know about that. But now it's going to look like it's going to happen. And if Switch Pro does, in fact, come out, it's going to have so many shortages, you know, like there's no way people are going to be able to get it just because they can't manufacture enough. Right. I mean, seriously. Yeah. I mean, I think demand will definitely outpace supply no matter what. But um, my colleagues at Bloomberg who report on the supply chain a lot, um, our colleagues in China and, and um overseas uh have reported that because the switch pros chips are not competing directly with um the the playstation uh, and xbox um yeah. they might have a smoother process i mean we're talking about less powerful hardware in general so it's very po it's it's possible that switch that nintendo has their own suppliers and their own production pipelines that are that are less affected but um i think just based on the switch's success and based on the frothing demand for all things nintendo um i think that <laughs> getting a switch pro will be very difficult no matter what even i'll be, even I'll be pre aside from the shortage oh, like yeah the, i think the minute you it comes everybody out. else yeah you and everybody else Jason Schreier, your book, Press Reset, Ruin and Recovery in the Video Game Industry, is now available. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Why don't you plug yeah. some other things? Thank you, Kat and Nadia. And yeah, people should go check out um, the uh, Triple Click podcast, which I do with Kirk Hamilton and Matty Myers and is a lot of fun. We talk about video games and other things that are fun to talk about. Um, and yeah, uh, Triple Click and then Press Reset in bookstores now. Go buy it at your local indie bookstore because local indie bookstores are really cool. 
Thanks so much for coming on the show. And now let's continue on to the epic boss battle of the week of the Blood God. Don't go away. All right. Thanks to Jason for coming on the show. Had a great time. Always great to have Jason on Axe of the Blood God. And let's talk about the epic boss battle of the Blood God of the week. Or maybe it's the other way around. Who even knows? But Nadia, who is the epic boss battle of the week of the Blood God this week? figured with this avalanche of Dragon Quest news, it would not be a bad idea to highlight one of the first major Japanese RPG bosses of all time, and that is the Dragon Lord. Have you ever fought the Dragon Lord, Cat, in the original Dragon Quest? No. Number one, when you play Dragon Quest, like, of course, it's a very primitive RPG story-wise, but that works in its favor because the whole quest is essentially you getting strong enough to fight the Dragon Lord, because all you know, the only thing you really need to know is... He's the one holding the world in thrall. You have to beat him. You have to build yourself up so you can take him down. And that means, of course, uh, getting strong enough to do that in the first place. But it also means finding Erdrick's armor, which is immune to, not really immune to, but will cut down on his fire breath, which is really lethal. And also going to the depths of the Dragon Lord's castle and finding Erdrick's sword, which is the only thing that will really pierce his scales. You have to do all that throughout the entirety of your quest. And I think it's really interesting how it builds up to that. But then you also have to get through his castle before you can beat the Dragon Lord. And his castle is not easy because, number one, you have to find a hidden entrance that you get hints on how to find this, this entrance. And if you don't follow those hints and do what you're told, you will end up in one of the many infinite loops in the castle that will take you through the same quarters over and over again until you backtrack. So... There's that. There's the fact that the castle is absolutely packed with some of the strongest enemies in the game, including that's the only place to see the Red Dragon, I think, who is really lethal. There's no save points, nothing like that. And of course, you have very, very limited healing items, very limited magic restore items. And then you finally get to the Dragon Lord, and he offers you that famous chance. Do you want to join him, or do you want to kill him? And when you join him, it is not an idle threat. He says, are you sure? And you say yes. And to this day, I don't know what he does when you say yes. The screen goes goes like red and black, and it insinuates that he kills you, but you don't see your hit points drop to zero. That's what creeps me out. Your gold and your experience drop to zero, but not your hit points. And of course, Dragon Quest Builders is based on that mythology where the hero says yes and everything's terrible because he said yes. When the Dragon Lord asks you if you want half the world and you say yes in the original game, that's relevant to when you play Dragon Quest Builders and you find the hero's tower and it's called, it's literally named Half the World. And you go inside there and he, the hero's locked in there and he's out of his mind. He has this little tiny room that he lives in and, and in his mind though, he believes that he owns half the world and he's he rules. He's a, he's a king over, over the, this entire realm. So you have to put him down. And meanwhile, the world is in terrible shape because he said yes in the first place. So we were talking earlier about how Dragon Quest can get dark. And there's a, there's a good example for you right there. Uh, bonus fact, there is apparently a song called, like, choose, uh, say yes to the Dragon Lord or something like that. It's by a Christian band. And it's pretty much about what you would think it would be about. <laughs> the lyrics reflect saying yes to the Dragon Lord. Did you just say it was a Christian band? 
it was a Christian man. I looked this up. I'm like, because I, I looked specifically for a video like saying like, you know, side with the dragon lord. That's what it's called. It's called side with the dragon lord. And looked for, I, looked, I Googled that and it, it gave me a, a song. I'm like, who the hell wrote a song about saying yes to the dragon lord? And it was a Christian band called Swift. It's like, oh, okay. Um, I actually kind of like that idea. Isn't that the video game equivalent of saying yes to Satan? Yes, <laughs> it really is. I mean, the song is in frame as a good choice. Don't get me wrong, but it's, 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 a, it's a song that they wrote. I like that Dragon Quest Builders decided to take its hero and say, if you say yes, effectively what you have is the end of Brazil, where the main character is completely insane and living inside their own head. And that's really messed up. It is very, very messed up because I guess that's what's insinuated that the Dragon Lord messes with the hero's head, thinks that he's the ruler of a kingdom. And meanwhile, the Dragon Lord has this, this hero locked away and is free to do whatever he pleases. And he decimates like Alephgard. He turns into like ash and, and nothing else. So the main tactic for beating the Dragon Lord is get the sword. Make sure you do get the sword. <laughs> get the sword make sure you i don't know what level you have to be i've heard like level 20 is usually a good level some people can do it earlier like level 16 just know the heal more spell and you'll you'll be okay just keep passing heal more keep hitting him you'll get there eventually i think i've mentioned that i'm a big game center cx fan nadia yes and in game center cx uh, arino is kind of famous for being bad at video games what they don't say however is that arino is actually an rpg master and that's mostly because he has a lot of persistence and he's willing to grind forever. Mm. And yes. in Guardia Quest, in, in the game based on Game Center CX, he maxed out the levels in Guardia Quest for, <laughs> and did all of the, the captured the, the toughest enemy in the game, which is him, <laughs> his head. <laughs> the reason I bring it up is that he actually, uh, he, he, finished the original dragon quest and finished it without too much trouble and seemed extremely familiar with it so arino secret rpg master he strikes me as the kind of guy who would know like every single rp like rng that comes with every single step you make in that game he makes a fair number of dragon quest references so i get the impression that he is a, a big time dragon quest fan and i remember when dragon quest 9 came out he was playing it pretty much constantly even like if he had a break on the show rather than going and not playing video games he would just pull out his ds and start playing dq9 <laughs> with the various people in the room which is great i i appreciate that very very much all right that was our epic boss battle of the blood god of the week or maybe the other way around anyway if you enjoy the segment do us a favor send us your epic boss battle of the week of the blood god and we may share it on the show okay nadia that is it for this week's episode of acts of the blood god thanks to everybody for listening we'll be back next week as always if you enjoyed the show follow us on all of the social media channels i'm on twitter at the underscore catbot nadia's at nadia oxford and acts of the blood god is at blood god pod make sure to leave us a nice review over on the podcatcher of your choice and if you want every episode a week early and ad-free, go sign up on our Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. We'll be back next week, as always, to talk more about RPGs. But until then, for Nadia, Jason, and myself, thanks for listening, and happy adventure. Made it in time for hockey. Yay!